0: Today's message is going to be a bit technical. I know there are some prophecy geeks in here, and I know there are some that have no idea what's going on in the end days, so I will make it simple, and I will fit it all together for you. I guarantee it. I will give you money back later if you don't understand afterwards. And then next week, next week is going to be the final consummation. It's going to be the new heavens, new earth. Personally, I can't wait. For the reality of that, but also for the message on that next week. But without any further ado, let's jump into Revelation 20. The title of this message is 1,000. And the reason why it's called 1,000 is because there's a phrase in um, up to verse 6, which Jim just read, six times the word "a 1,000 is read. So the title is that working is 1,000. Look in verse 2. Verse 2 it says, He, which is this angel who is the key to the bottomless pit, seized the dragon, Satan, threw him into the abyss. He put him in chains for, if you notice, a thousand years. Verse 3 said, He will be down there and locked up and sealed for a thousand years. Then you have verse 5. Verse 5 talks about these people that have not received the mark. They were beheaded. They're going to come to life. And in the middle of, actually, the middle of verse 4, it says they're going to reign, rule with Christ for a thousand years. Then it talks about the rest of the dead in verse 5 who are going to be put into Hades for a thousand years. And then it says in verse 6 that. Christ is going to rule a kingdom for a thousand years. That's why the title of this message this morning is Thousand. Fancy word for this is millennial. The theory is called the millennial, the premillennialism is what we're going to talk about today. But if you go to the next slide, where we get millennial is millennial is the Greek word for thousand, "milli." Then you have annal is year, and an ism is theory, so this is known as the 1,000-year theory. Pretty simple. 1,000 years of Jesus, Messiah, He is going to rule for 1,000 years. Literally. That's what, um, that's what millennialism means. It's a hotly debated topic. Serious prophecy buffs fall into either a premillennialist camp, Amillennialist camp or post-millennialist camp, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. I'm going to make it simple for you today. Very easy. Before I jump into anything, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they just got done watching the next Avengers movie. And I asked him about the next Avengers movie and I said, how is it? They said, oh, it's incredible. It brings all of the different characters in the play like Thor and the Hulk and even Guardians of the Galaxy are in there a little bit, see? If I asked you, Josh, what country did Thor come from? Where did he come from? See, he knows that. Asgard. Right away. Instantaneously. If I asked you, Steve, who is, what is the Hulk's original name? Who is he? What's his name? See that? Right away. And man, people can, you know, take all these weird, weird heroes. And did you know Thor isn't really a hero? He's a demigod, somebody told me yesterday. They have all of these thoughts, they put them together and they're excited. Then when we talk about prophecy, people are like, it's so confusing. No, it isn't. It is not. It's ridiculous. I think either people are just lazy when they come to church or Satan puts this veil of man. Simple things are so confusing. It's not. I'm going to make it so easy for you today. So when we talk about millennialism, which is a fancy word, it's not really. I just explained it to you. We need to understand three things today. Number one, when does this happen? We're going to talk about it. When does the 1,000 years of Jesus as king happen? Second thing we're going to talk about is who gets into the kingdom? I'd like to know. And what happens to those who don't get in? The third, third thing we're going to talk about is what will it be like? And I am going to approach this sheerly from a premillennial perspective. I'm not going to talk about post or ah. Uh, what does premillennial mean? Remember this? This is the church age. Do you remember? Church age. What is this? Rapture. Shroom, and the church is taken out. How many steps should I take? One, two. Three, four, five, six, seven. This is the second coming. Boom! That's what we talked about last week. Jesus comes down with His angels. He comes down with His church, His redeemed, to set up rule. Then over here, we're going to have a thousand years, and then way over here is the new heavens, new earth. This is where we are at right here in this period. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's give you a simple timeline. If you look in your bulletin, I have one for you. It's going to be very key if you look in your study notes. Because I have, this is going to be set up, but I also have three chairs on there which we're going to talk about. And it will help you get an idea where they're placed. But here's a simple timeline. Very easy. Before chapter 20, to the left side of the arrow is the tribulation period seven years of judgment that's what we talked about then you have the second coming when Jesus comes down boom comes to earth to set up his throne his kingdom then on the right side of the arrow that yellow that beautiful gold is going to be the thousand year millennial reign of Christ I don't want you to forget something because it's going to come into play in the next slide but If you remember, during the tribulation, we had a wedding going on at the same time. Remember we said there's a wedding in heaven and there's a war on earth. The wedding was the banquet of all of the redeemed that were sitting down to fine wine and good meats, And Jesus comes in robed, ready to take the earth. That's what we talked about last week. Is that clear? That should be clear. It's more clear than Avengers. I'm just telling you. It's simple. Alright. Now, we're not in chapter 20 yet. I want to explain some things. Go to the next slide. Before we get rolling, you need to know about three different thrones. I believe there are going to be different times when Jesus sits on a throne to judge. By judging, people are going to come before Him. He's going to be sitting And he's going to be evaluating our lives and then rendering either rewards or judgments. One is called the Bema Seat. One is called Zion's throne or his millennial throne. And then one is going to be the great white throne. That's terrifying. But let's first talk about the Bema Seat. Remember how we talked about the wedding supper of the Lamb? Before the wedding happens, I believe each saint will be judged by Jesus himself, on the judgment seat of Christ. Greek scholars call it the bema seat. What is a bema seat? Well, it's a concept from the ancient Olympics where a judge would sit on a seat at the finish line. The judge's purpose was to determine the position of first, second, third, and hand out awards, or he would give wreaths as trophies that would be put on the head. That's the imagery behind the bema seat says in 2 Corinthians 5, we will all, meaning all Christians, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What is He going to give us? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is not a seat of judgment. It's a seat of evaluating service. Not judgment of salvation if you're in or not. This is basically, you'll see what it is. It's an issue of service of how you performed as a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. It begins, it says, No one can lay any foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation of Christianity is Christ. The way I am a Christian is I believe in Jesus. When I believe in Jesus, He's the foundation of my life. Now keep reading. Verse 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. What day? When Jesus evaluates us, He will say, well, that work was straw. That work was gold. That work was hay. You know, that was a fine gem. And then keep reading. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. That means Jesus will judge it. If you notice, wood and hay and straw, what happens when you put fire to it? You have nothing left. What happens when you put fire to gold or jewels? It refines them and reveals them. That's the idea. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. This is unknown when it exactly occurs for each person, but I believe it comes before the wedding supper. We should not focus on the beam seed as Christ judging our sins, but rather as him rewarding us according to the activity, the events of our lives. Romans 14:10 to 12 says, you then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will have to give an account to himself before God. That's the judgment seat of Christ for service. Then you have the throne in Zion. And I believe at the second coming, when Jesus comes down, he is coming down to set up his throne, his kingdom, in Jerusalem. According to Isaiah chapter 2, the mount of Jerusalem will be lifted higher than all other mountains, and on this mountain will be set up his temple and his throne. That's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to be sitting on his throne, also the throne of the heir of David. I want you to go to Matthew 25, because this is a very controversial passage. I'll just say that. But I want you to take a look at this I'm not going to go in-depth because we're going to spend the majority of our time in in Revelations 20, but you probably haven't heard this passage read this way too often. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. It begins by saying, Jesus is is talking about when is the end of the world, the end of the time, and the coming of your kingdom, your age. He's answering that question in Matthew 24. That's the context. Remember he said nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then he says this in Matthew 25:31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and he comes in his glory, second coming, and all his angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right. Those are the good ones. And I believe those are the ones who have been faithful through the tribulation. They did not receive the mark. They persevered. They overcame because they had faith in Christ. And then those on the left? The goats. What's interesting, this says the nations. This isn't Jews. This is the nations, Gentiles. And they, they are judged based on how they treated, says Jesus. I believe this is, look where it says, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. This is often interpreted as a, how do you treat the poor? Usually, ten time, nine times out of ten, that's how they use that verse. When I was hungry, you gave me to eat. In context, I believe, and I, you can look this up later, I believe he is saying how you treated the people of God through the tribulation, those who did not receive the mark, they could not buy, they could not sell, so they're desperate, how you treated them. You give them water, you took care of them, you were doing it for me. Those who did it for me, are, they are the sheep. And then they're ju- those who are judged, verse 41 Um, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed in eternal fire. It's going right into judgment. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. We usually use this for, you have to do good things for the poor. This is, I believe, in reference to the end times events. Why? Look at even verse 46. Then, right after this judgment, they will go away to eternal punishment, but they're righteous to eternal life. So you could say this, Zion's throne is an issue of how you sacrificed. did you sacrifice your life during the millennial kingdom. Matthew 25, what's interesting is Joel 3, he says, you know, you, you nations took my people and you sold them as prostitutes. And then I'm, and at the end he's going to judge them in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So what is this throne? Gentiles who survived through the tribulation and how they treated Israel through persecution. That's my position. So let's move on, if you get that. Here we go. We are now going to Revelations 20. Revelations chapter 20. Let's begin in verse 19 and I'll show you the timeline. That arrow right there is second coming. He sets up his throne. That's the illustration. Revelations 19, the first thing that happened after the battle of Armageddon, look at verse 20 of chapter 19. The beast was captured. That's the Antichrist. And with him, the false prophet. That's his propaganda machine, this false priesthood. Who had performed miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So before the millennial kingdom even happens, that beast is thrown into the lake of fire. The permanent place of eternal damnation. Now we go to chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. So this is a mighty angel. He's got a key to a strange place called the abyss. The idea of the abyss, it's this cavernous under prison where demons are chained. Could you imagine going there? (laughs) man. I don't ever want to go down there. But he's got this key. He's the only one that can open it. He unlocked it earlier in Revelation, but listen to what happened. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So he bound him. He puts him in chains and he locks him up for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over him. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. What's interesting is some millennial positions believe that right now we're in a millennial kingdom. And so you ask them about, well, Satan still seems to be alive and well. Yeah, but if you notice, his work isn't as manifest as it was before Jesus came. Wait a minute. This says it's done. He's not lying anymore. It's over. It's sealed up until... He's released a little bit later. We'll talk about that. But for a thousand years, this rotten dude is finally locked up. If anything, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about you. Next, in verse 4 through 6, it says thrones are set up. Listen. I saw thrones on which were seated those, it's plural, who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark in their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who will apart in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. Why not just a throne of Christ? Because both Christians and those who are martyred are going to rule with Jesus forever. They're the immortals. Remember it says in 1 Corinthians, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ, they will be changed. Mortal will put on immortality. So we, you and me, those of us sitting in here who are Christians, after the second coming, when Jesus sets up his throne, we each are going to have thrones. We are going to rule. We are going to judge. Actually, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's 1 Corinthians 6 two. Luke 19 says, you who have had ten talents and you've spent them well, you will get to rule over ten cities. Romans 8, 7. If we are children, then we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. It's all through scripture that we're going to reign and rule with him. Now, here's the question, and I believe it's going to be here's I believe Jewish saints will rule in a promised land with Jesus. I believe Gentile saints will rule in the Gentile nations. That's just I'm not specific. I don't know, but he what we're going to see in a minute is he is going to fulfill his promises to the Jews. Now, here's the big question. This is the one Brad has. I can see it in his eyes. Now, what about those Jews and Gentiles that make it through the tribulation alive? The sheep. Do you remember that those Jews that went to Edom and they were hidden in the city for three and a half years that said, run to the desert, you'll be hidden, and they survive. What happens to them? I believe that they will make it into the kingdom of God they will be mortal. So you could say it like this, the Jews and those sheep, they're mortal. Their objective is to occupy the land and to serve the Lord. They will be fully able to participate in what was first mandated in the garden. You remember the very first mandate before Adam's sin? The fancy word, Ken likes this, is the missio dei, the mission of God. What is it? To be fruitful and multiply and cultivate the land. They will be mortals. They will still be able to bear children, and it will be in a millennial land. And there will be a lot of kids in the millennial kingdom. And we, who are immortals, will be judges and rulers and teachers. And I'm still claiming New Zealand. Still claiming it. You'll fight me for it? You can have the south, I'll take the north. All right, good deal. So then here's the next question What about the goats? What about the people who are dead? Look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So the goats are thrown into Hades with the people. If I'm, if I'm a non-Christian, I die right now, I go to Hades. And that's, it's like a... The best way to put it, it's not like the lake of fire because the lake of fire is eternal punishment with a body that will never be destroyed where this Hades is a temporary awaiting judgment awaiting sentence the people in Hades have not yet been sentenced before the throne that's the idea I don't know if it's much different because in Hades you still have gnashing of teeth but I just know you haven't fully been judged so Now that Satan is bound, rebels of the earth are in prison, demons are bound, what will the thousand years of Jesus as king be like? Here's the best way to put it. My friends, welcome to Zion. It will be. Everything you've ever dreamed. The kingdom finally realized. I'm not going to take the full sermon to talk about the wonders of the world without sin. That's really for next week when we talk about the new heaven and new earth. But I'll mention a few things. First of all, this 1,000 years is intended to showcase Israel and the fulfillment of all the promises given to them. That's the objective. God has made these amazing promises. Remember when we talked about Israel? This is going to be His showcase. His showcase. As Romans 11.12 says, listen to Romans 11.12. If Israel's transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentile, Paul asks, how much greater will their fullness bring? What he's saying, when they finally come back, the promises are finally fulfilled, if we're blessed by their disobedience, just wait, man, when their obedience is finally rewarded. We are really going to be blessed. The Old Testament is full of millennial promises, and they can be summed up in three phrases. Here's the three phrases Zion is going to be a mountain of joy. It's going to be a land of promises fulfilled, and Jesus rules. I mean, He really, finally, ultimately rules. So let's talk about these three. Zion will be a mountain of joy. Nations. There's so many verses. Nations will come streaming to see Jesus. Remember when Solomon was ruling? Nations would come to bring him gifts. The Queen of Sheba wanted to hear his wisdom. Sort of the same thing. Jesus will be ruling. Nations will be bearing gifts. They'll be going up to the mountain singing songs of triumph. They will rejoice with Jews. There's one verse that says Gentiles, four or five of them, will grab one Jew and bring him to the promised land rejoicing. Meaning there's no more shame. There's brotherhood. We will rejoice with the Jews who are reinstated as God's favored nation. His people will all be reunited under the banner of Israel, including both Judah and Israel. And all the Gentiles will enjoy enjoy this reunion. Why? There will be no jealousy. Because when we see His people reinstated, it will prove God's faithfulness to His Word. He is faithful to it. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Rivers will flow out of Jerusalem, and it will make the desert bloom. Actually, they say on the Mount of Jerusalem, it will be 50 miles wide. There will be a temple where there will be a priesthood set up to rejoice and honor the sun, but He will be reigning with an iron scepter. He'll turn armament into plowshares. The Promised Land, what will it be like? It will first of all be extended in territory and it will bloom in the richness of uncursed land. It will start blooming like crazy. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Moses says there will be increased productivity of crops. There will be abundance of water. It will be bright with a full soft sun. The desert will turn into crops. People will enjoy their fruit and eat it in peace. They won't need to build walls because there will be no war. No need for them. No one to fear. There will be no wild beasts that will kill or roam around, and there will be no more disgrace for Israel. Go to Isaiah 30. This is a really interesting messianic or millennial kingdom verse. Isaiah 30. Verses 11 through 18. It's it's talking about his fulfillment, his promise to Israel. Verse 11, actually verse 19, verse 19, says, O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help, meaning when you're distressed, you cry to him, he's instantly there. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you'll see them. Whether you turn to the right or left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Meaning they will know his will and his word. Then you'll defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You'll throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you, you won't want any more idolatry. Yuck! Verse 23, He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground. And the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash, spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. Meaning when Jesus comes Jerusalem, will be split open. There'll be rivers coming out of it. Verse 26, this is interesting. The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of His people and heals the wounds of the afflicted. So the Millennial Kingdom will be a time of refreshment and healing. Which leads us to Jesus' rule. Go to Psalm 132. We will be able... To see Jesus face to face. I believe Jesus will make these victory tours around the world. Could you imagine? Jesus in Van Andel Arena this weekend. Honored this weekend of the special guests of Kent City Baptist Church who remain faithful in northern Kent County and he will treat them the Ruth Chris's Steakhouse meal. It'll be, <laughs> the news won't lie anymore. It'll be great. But listen to Psalm 132. Verse 11 to 18. The Lord swore an oath to David. Remember how he said he fulfills his promises. The Lord swore an oath to David. A sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statues I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation. Her saints will ever sing for joy. This will be a a great place to be. Here I'll make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. So if we go back to Romans 20, we have just learned about the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk more about the specifics of heaven next week. But let's go back to Revelations 20 because the tide turns here a little bit. So Jesus has been reigning a thousand years. As it tends to get towards the end, there will be a lot of people, a lot of mortals, a lot of children, a lot of people growing up. The immortals will be ruling, teaching, and leading. But for the mortals, God will give them the same choice that all mortals have had before them to voluntarily worships, worship the Lord or believe Satan's lies. He will be loosed for a little while then march out for a final battle where he will be destroyed. Look at verses 7 and 9. When a thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like sand to the seashore. They marched against the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city He loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur. So the question is, why would God do this? I don't know. Alright, so. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I really do think there is something to say we went through this the mortals in the millennial kingdom will have to have the same shot as we do. That's all I got. I read a lot of different speculation. I don't know. I don't know. Jesus will, through fire, throw down Satan and he and the beast, where the beast already resides. So look at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So their throne, nobody can get out of that place. Once you're in there, you aren't getting out. It's done. Then, the final throne of judgment will be set up. The great white throne. I will read it first and then explain it. Starting in verse 11 through 15. Then, I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from His presence and there was no place for them. So it's almost like He's taking everybody and He's got this just this throne room. It's off the earth. Everything flees. I have a feeling this is when He scorches the earth and prepares it for the new heaven, new earth. Everybody's removed. Verse 12, And I saw all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. God is going to set up a heavenly courtroom while he's refashioning the earth. We will all be witnesses. Angels will be witnesses while he judges the nations. So first of all, it says the dead will be judged. Jesus is going to call people one by one, one by one, and bring them before a great tribunal where books will be opened. So the dead will be brought before the throne, books will be opened. I think I can name four books. I don't know how many books. It says the books will be opened, and then there's this other book, the book of life. It's as if the book of life is really the determining book. The books that were opened are the evidence against you to show you why you don't get in. What are some of these books of evidence? I know that Jesus names a couple. I think there's the book of words. Listen to Matthew twelve thirty six. He says, I tell you that men this is Jesus' own words, Matthew twelve thirty six. I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. I don't know. That's pretty terrifying. Every every careless word? Did you ever say the Lord's name in vain when you hit your hand with a hammer? Cool. Another book. Book of works. Look at Romans 2.6. Romans 2.6. We can start in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When His righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done so he's going to judge us by our works are they good enough to set you free from eternal damnation no i believe there could be what's called the book of intentions psalm 19:14 talks about he knows our meditations Matthew 5.21 and 5.28 seem to hint that he knows when a man lusts after a woman or he wants to murder a man in his heart. So there's this idea that what's intended is recorded. Ooh. Which leads to the book of life. Romans 20.12, we read about it. This idea that if your name is blotted out, you don't get in. I once heard that Rome would would have a record of everybody born, and when they died, they'd blot out the name. It's as if you are in God's book, but if you reject Him, your name's blotted out. If your name's blotted out, you're not in. You're not getting in. So after this horrible moment, those condemned, it says in Revelations, will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Second death. First death is physical death. Second death is eternal damnation. I don't like talking about this. I don't like talking about hell because to me personally it seems wrong. Just honestly. I wish it wasn't true. I don't delight in this. But it is not for me to decide the punishment of those who scorn holiness. Holiness is something we don't understand. We think we do. But we don't. And when you scorn it, there is a, there's a judgment for it. Is it fair? I don't know. I, I'm not God. But somehow we think we as little humans have the right to say, God is unjust if He does that. Who, who are you? I don't have time to go on all the philosophical inquiries concerning its reality, its makeup, its fairness. I just take the Word. So with that being said, there are two questions we have to ask. Number one, will it be forever? Look at verse 10 of Revelations 20. Tell me, how do you get around this verse? And I'm, I can go into a lot of other ones, but just look at verse 10. It uses the devil's example, and again, matthew twenty five forty one says, "Hell really wasn't intended for us. It was for the devil and his angels, but those who choose to follow him, they go to the same place. They experience the same judgment. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They aren't extinguished. They aren't annihilated. They are tormented. And it doesn't end. Forever. Second thing, will it be painful? Yeah. Jesus Himself makes a statement in Luke 16, 24, talking about the rich man who was sent to Hades, which is a precursor of the lake of fire. The rich man says, Have pity on me, Lord, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into the water to cool my tongue. I am in agony in this fire just to cool his tongue. People would say, well, this is a metaphor. Why would Jesus choke like this? Why would he joke around like this? It's like telling your kid, don't go out in the backyard. If you go out in the backyard, there's a man with a chainsaw. He'll cut off your head. You don't joke around like that. Hell is mysterious. It really is. I don't understand it. I don't enjoy it. And I don't ever want to bash people over the head with it. It just is. I do like this quote, though. It's by Mike Whitmer. The existence of hell is a mystery. Anything connected with the fall will never make sense. Meaning the fall is when we rebelled. God said, don't do it. It will mess up my order of things. Don't do it. But Adam ignored it. So he's saying anything connected with the fall will never make sense. Evil, precisely because it's evil, evil means things are, the good is perverted. It's screwed up. It's messed up. Evil, because it's evil, is not supposed to make sense. Second, it is important to remember that God does not hold anyone in hell against His or her will. The damned are in hell because they choose to be independent from God. I don't need them. I can do it myself. I don't want them. And Jesus is not beautiful. Satan is there. Demons are there. The rebels of the earth are there and they are forever shut out from the presence of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, we have one last stop. My question, are you ready for it? This last stop is the next train is to the new heaven and new earth. Before we get there, I'm going to ask you to study the verses. Make sure you are not found before the great white throne. Personally, I think seeing the eyes of Jesus and his rejection of you, the one who made you and loved you, that will be worse than hell itself. There is a way to escape this. It's the cross. That's when Jesus showed his love for you. And he died for you. And he's saying, have faith. Believe in me, and I will give you eternal life. That's how you escape it. Think hard on this. Let's pray. Lord, we, first of all, stand in a little bit of, oh, I'd say, Fear, timidity, um, and we wonder what that will be like, and it's scary. It's also wonderful that Jesus rules without Satan's influence. I, I can't wait for that. But in the meantime, we're, we're, we are before the tribulation. We are before the end of the world, and uh, we are given a choice. I pray for those people in here who have heard this message, I pray that God, like like a brand, hot branded iron, you will brand this truth into people's souls. Let them meditate on it. Let them not just let it go. and Let it evaporate. Let it haunt them. And I pray for the Christians in here. I pray that God, we would realize the stakes are high for the unbeliever. Help us to have mercy, pity, and compassion. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.